Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. This is a conversation about the second book of Kings. And Mike, I'm going to ask you, as I have done in each episode, sum it up in a sentence. God stays faithful to his plans, even when we aren't. Okay, so who are going to be the main characters in this second book of Kings? Well, we're going to see a whole jumble of characters, is the truth. Second Kings follows on very much from First Kings. Remember, we said in a previous episode, it was originally one book anyway, and was divided into two when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, into the Septuagint. And it's so oddly divided that actually it's divided up halfway between the reign of Ahaziah, king of Israel. So chopped right in the middle. Chopped right in the middle, which is really weird. Now, as we said about one kings, the author keeps alternating between the story of a king of Judah, tells that story and then says, meanwhile, going back to Israel, this what was happening in Israel over that time, and he alternates between the two. So what we're going to find in this book are some of the kings of both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We're going to find the end of the history of the northern people and the disaster that hits the southern people, and we're going to find the story of the end of one prophet's life uh, and another prophet's life. So it's a mixture of uh, kings and prophets and where the destiny of God's people is heading in this book. So we start the second book of Kings then still with Elijah in the frame. Yes, and it's now coming to the end of Elijah's life. Uh, God had directed Elijah to anoint a successor to follow him and that was the prophet Elisha. And Elijah had done it extremely reluctantly. Uh, that's back in 1 Kings 19. And uh, Elijah was a bit of a loner. He really didn't like operating with other people around him. He wasn't a team player. So by the time we come to 2 Kings and in chapter 2, it's time for Elijah to leave this world and for Elisha, who's been watching and learning from him, to take over. Uh, Elijah has the sort of dramatic departure from this world that perhaps we might expect from a guy who's seen very dramatic miracles and events in his life. And uh, he is taken up to heaven in a sort of whirlwind and in a chariot of fire. But before he does that, Elisha, they both know what is about to happen. Elisha has said, you know, before you go, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Now, that does not mean let me have twice as much as you did. This was a Hebrew way of talking. The double portion was the portion of inheritance. When a father died, if he had four sons, his estate would be divided into five shares and the eldest son would be given two shares, a double portion because he would now be heading up the family and responsible for looking after the extended family and the waifs and strays and anyone who came along so needed more resources. So when Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion, he's saying, let me be considered your successor. And Elijah, again, somewhat reluctantly sort of says, well, all right, if you see me go when I go, 
you can be. And in fact, Elisha does see him taken up to heaven. He drops his cloak as he is. Don't ask me what happened. You've got that look on your face there. You're going to say how? And the answer is, I don't know. It was a miracle. He's taken up to heaven <laughs> in this chariot. And Elisha calls after him, my father, my father, the chariots of heaven there. And he was no more, but he grabs his cloak as it falls. And with that cloak, he goes back to the River Jordan that they had crossed, strikes the River Jordan and calls out, where is the God of Elijah? And as he does that, the waters of the Jordan divide and he can pass over. It's as if God has given him his sign that he'd wanted, that he has indeed been appointed to be the successor of Elijah. So the next few chapters of Two Kings are going to be stories about this prophet Elisha. I was going to say, what does Two Kings record? It's interesting always what the Bible includes and doesn't include about somebody's life. So what does it focus on? Well, one of the big differences between Elijah and Elisha, Elijah's ministry had been very confrontational about Baal worship. This was because at that time, under King Ahab in particular and his wife Jezebel, Baal worship was in great danger of almost swamping the whole of Israel and extinguishing the very life of the true worship of Yahweh. So Elijah's ministry had been very much confrontation with Baal and his prophets. Elisha's ministry in two kings is really very different. He still has some of those confrontations, but this is a man whose ministry is characterized much more by concern for the poor and the needy and God's provision for them. We've seen many times already as we've worked our way through the Bible, this emphasis that we find of God's heart for the poor. And so the sort of stories that we find from uh, chapter three and four onwards are things like Elisha purifying the water uh, supply for some people when it gets poisoned and through a miracle, he purifies it. In chapter four, he provides for a widow through endless oil for her when she is about to die. Uh, we find him raising a young man from the dead in chapter four. We find him purifying poisoned food and uh, in a foretaste of uh, Jesus's miracle of the loaves and fishes, feeding a hundred people from 20 loaves in chapter four. In chapter five, we find him healing Naaman. What was special about that? Well, Naaman wasn't even an Israelite. He was a commander of the king of Aram, one of the enemies of Israel, and he had leprosy. And he's responsible for the healing of that. In chapter six, we find him restoring a, a lost axe head. Now, we might think an axe head, what's special about that? Well, this is the beginning of the Iron Age. And iron was incredibly precious and the axe was borrowed. And while the guy was using it, the axe head had flown off, landed in the river and through a miracle, Elisha restores it. Um, there's the miracle of him seeing the troops of Aram who'd been sent to capture him, blinded miraculously. So these are 
very, very different to the sort of miracles and demonstrations of power that we saw in the life of Elijah. They're much more personal. They're much more compassionate. They're much more serving those who have needs, despite the fact that this nation of Israel has wandered away from God. Here is the kindness and goodness and faithfulness of God that even in the midst of that, where people still have a heart that is open to him and to reach out to him, he still provides for them. How crucial is Elisha's role at this time? Well, I think it's crucial in in at least two ways. First of all, for the reasons we've just said, that ministering to the needs of ordinary people, whether it's a lost accent or you're about to die because you've got no food, this is the God of compassion. But one of the other things that Elisha does at a much more sort of national level that is very significant is that he had been told to go and anoint Jehu as the king of Israel. Now, this was not a descendant. Remember, we've said in a previous episode that the kings of the north do not come from one family line. They come from many different dynasties over this period. But he is sent in 2 Kings chapter 9 to anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel, even though there's a king on the throne at the time, he's going to replace him. And that's exactly what happens. So while his ministry is predominantly, if you like, on the personal level, whereas Elijah's have been much more on the national level, there is that very significant task there is he anoints Jehu as the king, fulfilling that task that Elisha had given him back in 1 Kings chapter 19. Because these were serious times. You know, the way in which these kings were leading the people was either very good or very bad. Yes, and that is exactly how the author of kings judges each of these kings, whether they're from the north, Israel, or from the south, Judah. And we will get an account of their lives. And each time we will be told that, you know, but he did not walk in the ways of his ancestors, David, or whatever it might be, or he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. So the author, as he looks back on history, this text was almost certainly finalized when Judah was in exile in Babylon. And there in exile in Babylon in the years to come, they would look back and say, how did we end up here? And the editors and authors of One and Two Kings are looking back and saying, it's easy, just look back on our history. Every time someone obeyed God, there was blessing. Every time a king disobeyed God and turned away, we bore the fruits of that. We're here because we and our leaders did not obey what God said. So each time after each king, it will be made clear whether they are good kings who obeyed God's word or not good kings who disobeyed it and who followed after other gods. So we have this divided kingdom, the north and the south. What's going on in the north? Well, what is happening in the north over this period of time, if I can give a big sweep of the history here, is that slowly, little by little, the north is drifting more and more away from the true worship of Yahweh 
and picking up more and more of the worship of Baal. Now, it was never quite as overt as replacing God. They were putting him alongside what's called syncretism, trying to blend two gods, though some kings were much worse at how they did this than others. So one of the really wicked kings of the north, for example, will be King Manasseh, who will take Baal worship to such an extent that he will even offer his own son to Baal in the fire. What they used to do was have iron statues of the Baal with outstretched arms, a furnace inside it heated up to tremendous heat. And then can you believe this? I, you know, I can hardly say this without choking up. And little babies then put on the outstretched arms of the idol to die. This is the horrific extent to which Baal worship had come. So the overview of this period is that increasingly the kings are leading people away from the true worship of Yahweh, the one true living God. And they are not listening to the warnings of the prophets. Now, we don't get them all referred to here, but we do meet the prophets later in the Bible and we'll be looking at those in future episodes. And they're challenged to say, unless we change, unless we get back to the one true God, judgment is going to come upon us. And each time, of course, people say, no, that's not going to happen to us. They feel that they will be okay. But where the story takes us for the North is that it inexorably leads towards a point of judgment, the point of no return. And that point comes by 2 Kings chapter 17, where we discover that the North is about to end as a kingdom, never to be restored again. By now, known also as Samaria after its capital, as well as Israel, what had been happening was way over to the east in the area of Mesopotamia by the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, a great empire had been growing called Assyria, a ferocious empire, a cruel empire, an expansionist empire that was looking to expand its kingdom more and more. And it set its eyes towards the west, towards Syria to the north, then Israel, Judah beneath it, even Egypt beyond it had its exile on. And God permitted this growing empire to attack the north. At first, it simply required tribute from it, acknowledging that they were the overlords. But when the kings of the north wouldn't go on paying that tribute, but actually tried to rebel against it and even asked Egypt to help them fight against Assyria, Assyria decided that was it. So what I'd like to do here is perhaps just read a few verses mm. from 2 Kings 17 verse 5, which tells us what happened and why, and it's a great summary. We read that then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land of Israel. And for three years, he besieged the city of Samaria, their capital. Finally, in the ninth year of King Hashir's reign, Samaria fell and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. They were settled in colonies in Halar along the 
banks of the Habor River in Gozan and the city of the Medes. This disaster came upon the people of Israel because they'd worshipped other gods. They'd sinned against the Lord, their God, who'd brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They'd followed the practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The people of Israel had also secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. They built pagan shrines for themselves in all their towns from the smallest outpost to the largest walled city. They set up sacred pillars and Asherah poles at the top of every hill and under every green tree. They offered sacrifices on the hilltops just like the nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them. So the people of Israel had done many evil things arousing the Lord's anger. Yes, they worshipped idols despite the Lord's specific and repeated warnings, again and again the Lord had sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah, turn from all your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees, the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I gave you through my servants, the prophets. But the Israelites would not listen. They were as stubborn as their ancestors had been, who refused to believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he'd made. They worshipped, despised all his warnings. They worshipped worthless idols and so became worthless themselves. That's a powerful phrase. When we worship worthless things, we become worthless ourselves. And so it goes on to say that because they rejected these commands and because they even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire and consulted fortune tellers and practiced sorcery and etc etc and the story is built up therefore the lord rejected all the descendants of israel and punished them by handing them over to their attackers until he had banished them from his presence. It's as if God says, I have tried and tried and tried. I've caught you and caught you and caught you. And you've kept turning from my ways and turning to this horrible Baal worship with all its wicked practices. You've drifted that far from me that all I can do is to now send you into exile. And he has them scattered across the Assyrian Empire, never to come back together again for us today what's the warning about letting our guard down spiritually i don't think any of these people ever woke up and said oh do you know what i think i'm going to reject yahweh and start worshiping baal today things have a way of creeping in on us sin particularly has a way of creeping in on us disobedience to god doesn't come overtly it comes by disobeying the little things, then a slightly bigger thing, and then an even bigger thing. And I think it warns us of the danger of creepology, of things creeping up on us and then seeping slowly into our lives. And rather than us dealing with the things while they're small, we live with them, we accept them as normal until those things become bigger and bigger and we live with them and accept them as normal, which is what these people were doing. 
until eventually the point has come where we have drifted so far from God that when God sent them into exile, all he was doing was in reality expressing what was already there in their hearts. They had already gone into exile from God long before. And now he says, so be it. And so the challenge to us is to watch for those things that creep into our life, that we excuse, that we let slowly grow, lest they so consume us that the reality becomes we have drifted far from God and he has no choice but to say, well, if that's your choice, off you go. This surely was a massive warning to the tribes in the south. Absolutely. And you would have thought that they would have learnt from that, wouldn't you? And in fact, one of the messages of the prophets in the south is often to say to the people in the south, the nation of Judah, look, can you see what's happened to the north because they drifted from God? The same will surely happen to us unless we change. But the people turned around and said, well, no, I don't think that can happen to us. I mean, after all, we are the chosen ones. We're the people of God. We have David's descendants on the throne. And God made a promise to David, after all, that he'd never fail to have a man on the throne. So we are fine. Oh, and by the way, the other good thing is, of course, we have the temple. We have the house of God in our midst. God would never let that be touched. And the prophets over these years, and we see this more in the books of the prophets that intersperse in this story rather than in two kings itself, constantly challenge people to say, unless we change the same thing that happened to the north will happen to us. And is there any attempt to change their ways or to be careful to avoid ending up like the north? Yes, there are attempts by some of the kings who undoubtedly were uh, more godly than the others. I think two of the kings that stand out in particular that we read of in two kings, one of them is King Hezekiah from two kings chapter 18, who will find himself at one point being attacked by the Assyrians. Now, remember, their borders now just, what, a dozen miles or so to the north of where Jerusalem is. And, and so in 701 BC, the north, by the way, had fallen to Assyria in 722-721 BC. Now, 701 BC, 20 years or so later, the king of Assyria decides it's time to attack the south, Judah, as well. And it looks like it's going to happen. He surrounds the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in his records that archaeologists have found from the time, it says, Hezekiah, I shut up like a bird in a cage. <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? But he doesn't go on to tell us the rest of the story because Hezekiah, encouraged by the prophet Isaiah, yes, the prophet whose book we've got later in the Bible, stands firm and puts his trust in God. And when the Assyrians send a threatening letter, Hezekiah simply takes that threatening letter and spreads it out in the temple before God and says, God, do you see this? And God sees his heart 
and intervenes really quite miraculously. And that was in response to Isaiah's encouragement to trust. And as he does that, as he puts his trust wholly in God, we read at the end of 2 Kings 19 that that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers who were surrounding the city and the rest simply have to withdraw. So, yes, Hezekiah, I did shut up like a bird in a cage, but he doesn't go on to say, but God came and intervened and we had to withdraw. And the other king? The other king is the King Josiah, who seeks to bring the south back to a living relationship with God again. Josiah was only eight years old when he became king. So he was really quite young. Uh, but this amazing young boy king, as he grows up, turns his heart more and more to God. You can find his story from chapter 22 onwards of two kings. And during his reign, what is called the book of the law is discovered during some renovations of the temple. We think that was the book of Deuteronomy from what is in it and the things that he does out of discovering it. Well, it had been lost. It had been lost. I mean, it's, it's a bit like, you know, losing your Old Testament today from your Bible and no one had noticed. So they've lost this whole book of the Bible. It's rediscovered during repair work, hidden behind a wall in the temple. And when it's found, they bring it to Josiah and Josiah, when he sees it, says, my goodness, we've drifted far from God. And as a result of that, renews the covenant between the people and himself and God along the lines that we find in the book of Deuteronomy, which suggests that's what it is. So two really good kings here who do try to turn things around. But for the most part, what we find in these latter chapters of two kings are kings who were just at best half-hearted towards God or who wanted you know, a, a bit of God, but a, a bit of the other gods as well, who wanted to listen to what prophets like Jeremiah, who was around at this time, wanted to say, but couldn't face up to doing the sort of things that Jeremiah was saying that we'll look at in a future episode. And it's ultimately these wicked kings that will predominate and that will lead to the disaster that will fall upon Judah. Basically, what happens is eventually Assyria has been overtaken by another empire that has grown up from within itself in the east, the nation of Babylon, who was even more cruel and more fierce. And the nation of Babylon eventually decides it's had enough of these Timpot kings in Judah messing them about, frankly, and so decides to attack Jerusalem. And in 586 BC, we get the most traumatic event of the whole of the Old Testament period when King Nebuchadnezzar sends his Babylonian army against Jerusalem, surrounds it, attacks it, destroys it, pulls its walls down, then utterly destroys the city, pulls down the temple, the precious temple, the, the place that represented God's throne here on earth and deports most of the Judean citizens back to the land of Babylon, almost a thousand mile journey away. But the difference this time from the exile that had happened to Israel in the north 
when Assyria had attacked the north, they had dispersed the Israelites all over their worldwide, worldwide for those days, of course, empire. And those people had become dispersed and settled and never really returned apart from an odd few. But when Babylon attacks Jerusalem and exiles the Judeans, it has a different policy. It will take them to certain cities in Babylon and allow them to remain as identifiable communities and thus retain their identity ready for the next phase of the story, the next book along the shelf in the library that will see them ultimately coming back again, just like Jeremiah had prophesied. But the honest truth is Two Kings ends up on an incredibly sad note. This note of Jerusalem being destroyed, the king being killed after his sons have been killed before his eyes, the palace being set alight, all the treasures of the temple being taken back as trophies, the people being exiled into Babylon with just a, a few of the poorest people left there in the city and outside the city to take care of things. The centre of everything virtually gone. And it's summed up in this one phrase, David, so Judah went into captivity away from her land. And that's the sad note that Two Kings ends on. What could have been so great and what God had promised would be so great now seems to have been sand that's dribbled through their fingers. Whose fault? Nobody's but their own. Sin is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, it's incredibly powerful, but it's also incredibly deceptive. As a pastor over the years, I can think of the number of people who've come to me and been able to explain away their sin because they've got some rationale that they have created and fabricated within their own thinking that now makes their behavior utterly acceptable. And you say to them, but look what God's word says about that. Ah, yes, but. And it seems to be that that sadly is what Judah had done over this period. They hadn't even learnt from the example of Israel in the north. That was such a powerful example. Anyone with half a brain could have seen, oh my goodness, if we aren't obedient to God, look what happens. They didn't, and they they deluded themselves. They kidded themselves. They, they thought that because the temple was there, they would always be okay. And sin has this way of doing this, of subtly, slowly undermining us and always getting us to think that our rationalized reason for behaving in a particular way is actually far more relevant than what God's word says today. And for me, that is a powerful lesson out of this book that we can still apply today. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.